A famous example of ecological niches in the animal world involves the finches of the Galapagos Islands. Different species of finch vary in the size and shape of their beaks, depending on the sort of food they eat. So, for instance, one species might have a stout beak for crushing hard seeds, another a probing beak for picking insects from vegetation. Beaks also vary in size according to the type of seed a bird eats. So the beak of the finch is a signature of how each species makes its living on the islands, its ecological niche. What about niches in the plant world? It's clear that there has to be some way in which plants obtain a living in different ways. If they didn't, there would then be just one plant that did better than all others, and instead of having four hundred thousand species of flowering plants, we'd have one or two, perhaps one per continent or something, which. Would be quite the reverse of biodiversity, but if you actually look at what plants require and how they obtain it, you don't see the picture that you see in finches, where each species has a clear difference. You see a lot of obvious similarities because all plants require light. They all require water. They all require basic plant nutrients: nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and other minerals in smaller quantities. They all seem to obtain these things in much the same way. All green plants have green leaves,、uh, with which they capture light and photosynthesize. They capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through little apertures in the leaf called stomates, and their characteristics are really fairly similar. So, how is it possible for plants to carve out a vast array of different niches when they, at first sight, seem to obtain their resources in similar ways? How might you go about studying how plant niches evolve? If you really want to get at the evolution of niches, what one needs to do is to go somewhere where you can study plant niches in situ, in the kind of environment where they evolved. There are places, and there's one particular place where you can look at species today, which evolved, as far as we can tell, in that very place with each other, and that place is the Cape of South Africa. The beauty of the Cape is its huge floristic diversity. There are some nine thousand species. Half of them evolved from just thirty-three ancestors. Something like seventy percent of the species in the Cape are endemic. That is to say, they're found nowhere else. And there are families in the Cape which occur nowhere else. In fact, there are even nature reserves with two or three families present in them that occur nowhere else. With David Going and other colleagues. Silvertown has been studying a group of plants rather similar to rushes, called the restios. There are about 350 species in the Cape, flourishing in a type of heathland vegetation called fainboss. They're all quite closely related to each other. You can get in a single site a dozen, even two dozen, living together. And what we're looking at is how they manage this. Whether we can actually find out what the different niches of restios within a particular site are, and what we've discovered. Is that the species separate out on soil moisture gradients, so that you could describe the niches of different restios in terms of their preferences, and I put the word preference in inverted commas, their preferences for areas of different soil moisture. It looks as though subtle variations in soil moisture content can favour different species of restio. So you can get a patchwork of species living together on one site, simply because they vary in small but distinct ways in how much water they need. It's remarkable how such subtle differences can lead to such dramatic diversity. Could it be unique to this type of vegetation? 
it was something of a surprise that we found the restios separated out on soil moisture gradients as clearly as they did. We thought they might because we'd already discovered a phenomenon rather like this in meadows in England. However, there is a huge difference between meadow communities in Britain and the communities where restios live in South Africa, which is a kind of heathland called Thanebos. So in meadows in England, these are flooded regularly. Every year in winter, the meadows are flooded and then they dry out in the summer. In Fainbos, there is some flooding, but the key environmental factor in Fainbos is not water, but fire. And every 15 to 50 years, depending on chance to some extent, these Fainbos communities, these heathland communities, completely burn to the ground. This is a natural process. It's been going on for millions of years and the plants are adapted to it. In fact, they even require smoke and fire to trigger germination of their seeds in many cases. So then the Feinbos community comes back, it recovers in a phoenix-like fashion from buried roots that then sprout and seeds that then germinate. So in a situation like that, where fire drives the whole system, it's kind of surprising to discover just how important water is in enabling species to coexist with each other by having different niches. And yet, the contrast between South African heathland and English meadows is itself a strong pointer that niches based on soil moisture content may be more widespread than you might think. If you look at all the differences between Thainbos in South Africa and meadows in England. They are so great that to find that the plants behave in a similar way does suggest something very fundamental about the processes, they're probably physiological processes, that are causing plants to behave in this way. There's not a single species in common between Thainbos and meadows. Many of the families are completely different. So we're sampling if we compare the two communities, one in the southern hemisphere, one in the northern hemisphere, one driven by flood, the other one driven by drought, one woody, the other one mainly herbaceous, we're dealing with species that are sampled from very different parts of what you might call the green part of the tree of life. And if you then discover that these species sampled in very different places within the evolutionary tree are actually behaving the same way, there's every reason to suppose that all the species between them, if you like, on the tree, all the other species which we haven't sampled yet, are probably behaving in a similar way too. And that then makes this result about as general as you can get. Of course, adapting to the availability of water isn't the only way in which plants create separate niches in their environment. Light is another example. Different species in a forest can live at different heights in the canopy. Plants also vary in the way they disperse their seeds, and this might allow them to occupy different niches. What's crucial is that by specialising in some way, plants are demonstrating one aspect of why ecology and evolution are so intimately linked. It's what's known as a trade-off. What a trade-off is, is essentially, it's a very simple idea. It's the idea that you can't have your cake and eat it too, that every adaptation obviously has some advantages, but it also has some inherent disadvantages as well. Let's take the example of a tree that's tolerant of shade. You can be tolerant of shade, but you can't grow fast if you're going to grow in a shady place. So there's a trade-off between shade tolerance and rate of growth. This can produce different niches because there'll be plants that are intolerant of shade but can grow very fast, 
when they have a light. And there'll be, at the other extreme, the reverse, plants that are tolerant of shade but necessarily have to grow slowly. For just about everything you can think of, there are always swings and roundabouts. There are advantages and disadvantages. And adaptation sort of finds a way through the compromises that have to be made between these opposing forces. And that's how adaptation evolves. So how does the concept of a trade-off help us to understand diversity? Diversity is a result of the compromises that species make when faced with these trade-offs. Essentially what trade-offs do is they force specialisation. You can't be a jack-of-all-trades because of trade-offs. Consequently, choosing one particular compromise between properties that trade off, between physiological demands, if you like, results in specialization. So a plant can specialize as being a slow-growing, shade-tolerant species or as a shade-intolerant, fast-growing species or something in between, but it can't occupy all of those niches given that there are other specialists around competing with it.